0: My name is Patty Lick, but my new name is uh, Patty and uh, Joseph Doctor. <laughs> and, um, and 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 by now I know all of you. You know my story. So well, let's just stand up and say the Lord's Prayer, and we'll go home. You know, <laughs> you know all of my story by now. I am um, a member of the sober on Saturday group. My a sobriety date is February the eighth, nineteen seventy-seven, and for that I'm so grateful, and most of the police in uh, uh, North America are grateful, and um, and Canada. And uh, and uh, after last night, uh, there's one uh, Icelandic cop that almost ran me over, and I went like that to him. And uh, I bet he's grateful I'm sober too. And then I had to remember, oh my God, I'm a guest in this country, and already I'm flying them off, you know. <laughs> but uh, no, no, never mind. Did you notice that all the women that are on the committee are pregnant? I would think twice before getting on this committee this year. <laughs> there must be something in the water. What do you think? I remember Barbara emailed me and she said you're the first one I'm going to tell I'm going to have a baby. And I was so happy for her. I wish she would tell everybody and I think she did shortly thereafter. <laughs> and and I want to thank Barbara. We have Barbara has been a wonderful, wonderful contact person. She just tells us about everything. She tells us about the weather. She tells us about your fundraisers and the bingo and she sends us your pictures. And then by the time we got here, we felt like we knew you. And, and I, on the behalf of my, my girlfriends, and these are my girlfriends. These are my women of Alcoholics Anonymous. These are my sisters. I want to thank you for your graciousness and your hospitality. And we have had so much fun. And I want you to know that we're not laughing at you. We're laughing with you. We have joked about several things, and I will tell you, uh, we, we think we are going to send you some architects. Here in Iceland. Uh, something to get you away from that basic box style, you know? Uh, um, uh, it's just, um, Jesus, don't you get tired of uh, tutor boxes and the raised ranch boxes and... Uh, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright boxes, I mean, you know. And, and the other day I was telling Thor, Paulina's uh, sweetheart, that, oh, now that's interesting. He said, that's public housing. <laughs> so believe me, I mean, we have some nutty uh, architecture, but uh, we're not laughing with you. We're, actually, we're in awe of your country. It is so beautiful, your country. It's so beautiful. We went uh, to your falls. We went to your geysers. And we were just amazed. And and uh, uh, Lisa was saying, watch, watch, the geyser's going to go up. And it goes, blurp a couple of times. Blurp like it's getting ready to belch. And then this aqua spray, and it just came up and, oh, like that. And then we got to see your golden falls. Oh makes N- Niagara Falls look like a mowing faucet. <laughs> Pitiful. It's so beautiful. And we climbed the mountain. This old lady climbed the mountain. You know, and I'm climbing up the stairs, and I climbed on the rocks. And I felt so good, we started singing the theme song from Rocky. da 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 da
1: da da Yes!
0: I mean, Americans are pitiful, I tell you. We're just pitiful. <laughs> and and you've taught us much. And uh, we admire your tenacity. We admire that uh, a bunch of women got together with an idea. And this idea is taking fruit tonight. And And your presence here tonight is so proof that any two alcoholics, when gathered together in God's name, can do great things. So I, I congratulate you, and I'm glad you're in the black. I'm an accountant. I don't like reading. So I congratulate you. Um, I'm going to read you my terminal disclaimer. This is the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. This is a first edition, and... Uh, I bought these two, I bought two first editions on the same day for two of them for 65 US dollars. One of the thing I like about Icelandic people is, boy, they're just like this on that translation into money. You know, I love that about you. And, uh, and I was walking out of the store in Highland Park, Illinois very ritzy neighborhood in in the state of Illinois, right outside the city of Chicago. And I thought, yes, yes, two first editions for $65. God, I felt so good. And as I was going out the doors, God said to me, get right back in there and tell him what he just did. And I said, no. (laughs) And God said, I'll zap your ass. I said, all right. And I marched back in and I said, don't you ever sell two first editions for $65 total money. And the man said, well, what would you have paid me? I said, minimum without dust jackets, 500 apiece. And the man looked at me and said, are you going to give that to me? And I said, no, just the information. That's all God told me to tell you is just the information. And when I mention God's name, he uh well anyway, I don't think he'll ever settle it. So here's my terminal disclaimer. Each individual, it, it's, by the way, it's in my page 39 and in the English-speaking editions of the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's editions 2, 3, and 4 on page 29. You see, when this book was written, Bill Wilson, who wrote this book, thought doctor's opinion was so important that it was incorporated and made a part of the book. And after Bill died, the lovely folks in New York, who think they know everything, didn't think that Dr. Silkworth should be considered a part of the book, The Doctor's Opinion. And so they made it Roman numerals, and therefore they renumbered the rest of the book. So, but I don't have an opinion on that. (laughs) I've gotten so socially acceptable, it's enough to make you want to puke. Anyway, it says in here, each individual in their personal stories describes in his own language. So none of you sweethearts out there, I used to say biddies, but none of you AA Nazis, after this is over, don't you come up here and take my inventory. Because guess what? You give it to me, you'll get it right back. This is my story, not yours. Okay. Are we all clear on that? Good. And so each individual in their personal stories describes in his own language and from his own point of view, the way he established his relationship with God. And I read that for a long time. You know, I, you know how you read things in the book and you read things in the book and one day you went, Oh, that's what I'm supposed to be doing up here. I'm not supposed to tell you what it was like, what happened, what it's like now. I'm supposed to tell you that A, B, and C are really true. A, Patty's an alcoholic. B, no human power. Not one of you could stop me from drinking tonight if I wanted to drink. So that blows the hell out of this WE program, doesn't it? Doesn't it? You know, you stick around enough of this wee program, you'll get drunk, at least in the States. I don't know about here in wonderful Iceland, downtown Iceland, but whoa, 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 whoa. And see that God could and would if he were sought. That's all true. See, so if Patty doesn't develop a relationship with God, I'm in deep doo-doo. Cause, and it goes on to say in the book, and I'm not going to quote the book to you because all of you are just, I love it, that you're students of the book here. And I said, I love that. And it says that we think the man unfeeling when he says sobriety is enough. Oh, it's so much more than that, isn't it? You know, I came here a scared, frightened, immature, brat baby, uh, barely a human being. And today I stand before you, and according to my sponsor, Katie Haygood, I am a woman of dignity. I have worth. I have purpose. And I like that. I like that. That means that I can go any place on the face of the earth and put my chin up and my tits out, and baby, I'm a child of God. I have a right to be here. And if you don't have that feeling, it's okay. Come join us. Come take our hands. And one of these days, you'll be walking around going like this to your girlfriends who are down in the dumps. I sometimes used to sit at meetings, and I'd be, you know, in, in those early days. Do you remember those early days when you'd it just, you'd wake up in the morning and you'd pray and you'd turn your will over to the care of God, and, and you'd try to do all these things. Your sponsor asked you to do. take a bath. That was foreign to me. Take a bath, you know, wash your hair, brush your teeth. I didn't have any teeth to brush, but you know, brush your gums or something like that. <laughs> see, when, when you get spiritual, your, your teeth, you get new teeth. See, like this. I got to tell you about dentists. Barbara, aren't you related somehow to a dentist? <laughs> Katie took me to this dentist. He was only five months sober. Don't go to dentists that are only five months sober. You're taking your life in your hand. And, uh, Katie said, uh, give her some teeth. She'll wash your toilets. She can do billing. She's good at billing. And, um, she'll help you. She'll work for a minimum wage, $5.15 an hour. And she'll work that, that money off. Give her, give her teeth. That's the way Katie talked to everybody. And, um, so he made me teeth. So some years later, I'm in Chicago. And one of the fillings fell out of my false teeth because he put fillings in my false teeth so they would appear real. And the dentist in Chicago was saying, what's the name of the dentist that put fillings in false teeth? I'm going to report them. And I said, honey, it's a long story. Just put the damn filling back in the tube. I won't tell anybody you did it and we'll be straight. So, fillings in my false teeth. Don't they look real? All right. So let's, let's talk about the part of the sad ass story now. Talk to your neighbor. Everybody thinks that Florida, Floridians when they come to Iceland are going to be freezing. What you don't know is that in Florida it is hot. It's hot in Florida. We are smart enough not to go out into the hot weather. We have air conditioned cars, air conditioned apartments, air conditioned movie houses, air conditioned workplaces, and it's about 50 degrees Fahrenheit, which translates into 10 degrees Celsius. So right now it's warm in this room. See, we're not used to all this heat. We wish you would put some air conditioning on. Poor Paulina, every register in her house is turned to zero, and we put all the windows open. We wake up in the morning, yeah, fresh air, fresh air, fresh air, right, Annie? And and old poor Thor's going around in his little rosebud is sucked up all the way to his throat. Ooh, it's cold in here. You'll get that later. Think about it. Okay, let's talk about my sad ass little story. Um, I always, this part always reminds me of that story, um, Oliver Twist. I am born. <laughs> you know, I could I could tell that uh, uh, I am born, and you'd understand we could move right on to when I got to AA. <laughs> I was born either in Tampa, Florida, or Washington, D.C. It depends upon if you believe the drunken Indian, or the mafioso guy. Now, if you believe the Indian, I was born in a Catholic hospital in Tampa, Florida on July the 30th, 1939. I'm 65 years old. Yeah, I look pretty good, don't I? Did you know I got my first Social Security check a month ago or two months ago? God, I love it. I never thought I'd live long enough to get it. And, and in America, you can collect Social Security and make as much money as you want. And by the grace of God, I make oh, I'm I'm three, I'm 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 got more money than God.
1: <laughs> God, I shouldn't
0: put this on tape. The IRS will hear about it.
1: <laughs>
0: I've been fighting with those bastards since 1985. I think I'm going to outlive them. Um, <laughs> Anyway, okay, let's get back to my sad ass story. And, and the woman they gave me to was an, uh, Canadian Ojibwa, not Chippewa. There is no such thing as a Chippewa. It's an Ojibwa, which sounds like Chippewa. And you know, the white man has a habit of screwing up anybody's uh, ethnic background or anything. <laughs> and if they don't like you, they just wipe your ass out, you know. It's a good thing they like the Jews, Americans, you know. El sure all would have been dead by now. <laughs> they got a pretty good job on the engines. Anyway, so here this, this uh, Canadian Ojibwa took me home. Now, I have to tell you about this woman who called herself Mom, Mommy Dearest. And she was six foot and black hair, parted in the middle, bronzed skin, bronzed skin, six foot. My sister, who is three years older than myself, is six foot one, bronzed skin. Get the picture? Black hair, parted in the middle. It's kind of like being in Iceland. Everybody's blonde and white, you know? Blonde and white. Well, these Indians, I'm telling you, black hair, parted in the middle. And my brother, John, six foot five, you got it, black hair, parted in the middle, long, bronze skin. Vernon... My brother, six foot seven. You got it, right? Bronze skin, black hair, parted in the middle. I'm five, five and a half. I'm a white girl. I'm a white girl, and I got red hair. Now you would have thought they thought something was a little queer, wouldn't you? <laughs> and they did not like white people. They had a hard on for white people. And guess what? They didn't like me. And I hadn't done anything to them yet. <laughs> well, she took it upon herself to um, inflict. She was an alcoholic. God love her. She, you know, when you're getting ready to say something bad about somebody in the state of Texas, when you're, if you're getting ready to gossip about somebody or you're getting ready to say something bad about somebody, it's okay as long as you say, God love them. <laughs> Well, God love her. She was a bitch, and and she tried, she tried to, she started trying to kill me when I was two. And we're not going to go into a real big deal about this. I better check the time. And we're not going to go into a real big deal about this. But needless to say, by the time I was eight, I was being treated by the Department of Health in uh, Washington D.C., where we had moved for syphilis because she used to sell me to white men for big money starting when I was about four years of age. That was mommy dearest. So she used to put uh, cigarette burns, uh, cigarettes out on me. And one time she uh, put my hand through a washing machine and ringer and just turned off the lights and left. And when the woman got home several hours later, I had passed out, and my arm was purple and this big, and they managed to save it. That was mommy dearest. And I hid from her for a long time. I learned at an early age how to survive. I learned at an early age to hide from her. I know a lot. I was three years old going on 40. And she didn't feed me. And hunger hurts. Hunger hurts. And uh, so when I was eight, uh, they were going to take me away from her. And she pointed her finger at this mafioso guy in Washington, D.C. and said, that's her father. And this uh, Italian man and his wife adopted me. So um, they were kind of tall, and he had bronze skin and black curly hair. And I didn't look like him either. And in the 1990s, um, just for my own edification, I went to a geneticist. And uh, my sister and my two brothers Uh, volunteer to give blood, the Indians. And uh, normally it takes the first four markers to determine whether you are related to people. And by the first two markers, they could determine that I could not be related to that Indian. And so if I was not related to her, how could I be related to this Italian man? So... um, there's a lot of orphans in the world, and I've never been into victimhood. I think that's the only thing that saved my life. Because I see a lot of people in Alcoholics Anonymous come here, and they're so into victimhood that they die. They get dead before they get sober. Because they can't stop blaming mommy or daddy or society. And um, I, don't, I can't afford to go there. So I'm real cool with this. What happened, happened. And we could all sit here tonight because there are many of you facing me and looking at me. And I see that you have been through the same things I went through. And you know what it is to be abused. And we could cry because it's real sad, isn't it? But where the hell is that going to go? What is it going to do? The only thing it's going to do is help us talk to that next sick female that comes through the door that says to us, but you don't understand, but you don't understand. I was abused by a stepfather or a stepmother or a brother. And we can say, I know how you feel. It happened to me. Let's take the steps. Let's get on with life. Now that sounds cold, but that's the truth. I don't buy into, when I sponsor people, I don't buy into their victimhood. And thank God Katie Martin Haygood didn't buy into mine. And, and, and I'm, I think I'm alive today because that woman absolutely let me know that there is cause and effect for everything. I don't believe in that thing that shit happens. I don't agree with that. I think there's cause and effect for everything. Uh, so let's move on. I, um, the first thing they did, uh, <laughs> first thing they did was give me a bath, <laughs> and I had lice everywhere. I had lice on top of lice on top of lice, and I thought they were trying to drown me. And all the hell they were trying to do, those white people, were give me a bath, and I thought they were trying to drown me in this damn. Uh, porcelain. I'd never seen anything. I didn't know what it was. Look on to me, boy. And it was a bathtub. And I had never lived indoors. So I didn't know what sheets were beds. I didn't know what electric refrigerators were. Although when I stood in front of one, it was cool. And I thought I'd died and gone to heaven because I'd never seen so much food in all my life. And oh, I didn't mind living with the, they talk funny, but, you know, I could put up with that shit as long as they fed me. And, uh, And then the next day they took me to the doctor and they said she's dying of malnutrition, tuberculosis, and rickets. And I understand from an article in the paper last week that rickets are coming back. Imagine that. Kids are getting bowlegged again. So I was in braces for a long time and I had the straightest legs. If you want to see them, I'll show them to you for a buck apiece. How's that? (laughs) Lisa's got me wound up tonight. We're selling autographs to the big book. You believe that? I'll tell you another one. So... Here we are, and, and I'm, I'm living with this family, and they're feeding me on a regular basis, and I'm in the TB sanitarium for a whole year, and I get, come home for another whole year, and a complete bed rest. And they went out and hired this bl- 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 uh, black mama named Sarah. My father couldn't say her name. It was probably unda, unda, unda. And uh, so he named her Sarah. And... Uh, <laughs> I have tried so hard this weekend to, I really have. Do you know how hard I have tried? Because I want my name pronounced correctly. Do you know how hard I have tried to pronounce some of your names? And one gal, we stood together for five minutes. She had sixteen goddamn syllables in her name. And finally I said, your name is G. And she said, that's it. <laughs> She calls me P. I call her G. I'm not very good. I have a terrific speech impediment. And when you combine my speech impediment with those um, UTs and the O with the little dots on top of it, baby, I'm lost. And my tongue gets all twisted and everything. So. Forgive me if I've murdered your names, but I love you. <laughs> I love you. I really do. I just can't say some of the. Na- I really can't. But you know what? A funny thing is, I'm do. I'm better at the reading than I in the-, the pronunciation. I'm. I can look at a word now, and I can probably tell you what it is. That's good. I think. I go into the women's room now. <laughs> All right, let's get down to serious business. Um, I begin to hear things like discipline. I came home and I was at the bed rest and I started hearing things like Catholic school, discipline, incorrigible. And I didn't know what any of those things meant. But I knew I didn't like any of it. And I knew they were talking about me. And uh, sure enough, when I was 10 years old, they put me in Catholic school. And the very first day there, I got the beating of my life. And I was just, I thought I was just talking nice to this big penguin bird that came flying in the door, you know. I had never seen, it looked like a puffin without the, uh, didn't it? Terrible looking, funny. And glided, glided across the room, and the long black robes flowed, and I thought, what the hell is that? You know, scared me. And then all the little boys and girls, they jumped up, up out of the chairs, and they said, good morning, sister. And I was just sitting there. I was being a polite little girl. And she snapped her fingers, and she said, you, Tarantino, up. And I said, what the f- uh, fire truck? Are you talking? Are you talking to me? And boom! She hit me, and I was down on the floor, bleeding. And as I was getting up, I said, what the fire truck, and I was back down on the floor again. Now, I'm a child of the street, and we're awfully quick learners, children of the street. You see, if you don't learn out on the street, they'll eat you alive. So this time when I got up, I kept my mouth shut. But before that day ended, I got beat about five or six more times. And so I marched up 6th Street Hill in Washington, D.C., and I told my father, it took me a half of an hour to get the sentence out, blah, 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 because I was stuttering so bad, what she did to me. And I pulled up my skirt and I pulled down my britches and, and pointed to the welts on my buttocks. And he said, what happened? And it took me a long time to get it out because I was so nervous and I was just angry. And and I stuttered and I stuttered and finally he got it out of me. And, And I had my first spiritual experience that day. He beat me harder than they had. And he said, disgrace, you will never disgrace me again. So I learned two valuable lessons that day. Never talk back to authority. Never, ever talk back to authority. If they want you to do something, if a cop wants you to do something, just shake your head, yell, yeah, and then do what you want to do. You know, you know. And then never tell Daddy anything. Don't tell Daddy anything. And then when you couple that with that booze, and you push it down, and you push those feelings down, and you don't confide in anybody, and you don't trust anybody, because I found out, like Kelly. My sponsor made me go to college, made me go to university. And I went to that class, and it was called Psychology 101. And we talked about Dr. Abraham Maslow. I'll never forget that class that day. And he, they talked about the five levels of self-actualization and I had been working my steps, but I had never heard that and it was interesting because I knew that I would go back and tell Katie because she loved to hear, my sponsor loved to hear all these new things that I was learning. And my sponsor acted like she was interested in me. And I sometimes I couldn't wait to tell her. And I, and I remember telling her, Katie, Katie, do you know what the first level of self-actualization is? Air, food, shelter, and water. And I didn't get that. And the second level is trust. And the professor said, if you don't learn trust at home, where the hell are you going to learn it? So how was I supposed to learn trust when she was letting men rape me? No wonder I turned out screwed up. See? And Katie said, oh, that's good, honey. That's good. I want you to learn everything. Everything. See? So another spiritual awakening. So, but I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm getting ahead of myself. I haven't picked up the first drink yet. How can I talk about recovery when I haven't picked up the first drink yet? But I, I went to school. I started at 10, and I finished 12 years of school in five and a half years. I was 15 and a half years old when I graduated from high school. And I wanted to go to college. And my father, the Sicilian, thought that Italian women, I'm Irish, Italian women should sit in the kitchen, drink a little Anisette, and make babies. And honey, I was a liber back in the '40s and '50s. I was a feminist. I didn't want. I just. I didn't like anything about being a woman. Lisa, you didn't. You didn't want to be a woman. I didn't want to either. Didn't and for a long, I didn't want to be a man, but I didn't want to be a woman. I didn't want to be a second-class citizen. And very early in my life, I got tired of hitting this head on the glass ceiling. I have been in the business corporate world for a lot of years, and I got tired of making less money than a man for the same amount of work. And I don't badmouth men. I'm just telling you that I wanted my rights. And so I was introduced to this wondrous pain reliever. So I was 16 years old, and I was bleeding out of every part of my psyche and every part of my soul, and I was bleeding to death. And I didn't know I was so close to just blowing my damn brains out because I couldn't stand the emotional and mental pain. And I found a pain reliever. A hot summer Sunday afternoon, my dad got me a date. I had never had a date before. I was so ugly and so skinny, so ugly. And I got to tell you what Alcoholics Anonymous has taught me. You women have taught me this, that what you think you are, you are. And if you think you're ugly, you're ugly. You could be as glamorous as a movie star. But if you think you're ugly and worthless, a worthless piece of poop, that's what you are. And so I had this date with this guy, and he taught me, took me down. I can tell you that I can shut my eyes, I can see the scene. It was Ewells Tavern in North Beach, Maryland, right outside Washington D.C., and they gave me a Miller High Life beer, cold, wet, and delicious. God, and my friend Clancy tells me exactly what happened to me. And when an alcoholic drinks, they drink it and they go glug, glug 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 glug, and it hits the bottom down here, and it goes, boom, <laughs> boom, boom, whoa, boom. When a non-alcoholic drinks, they go glug glug glug. Oh, I gotta go piss them. And so I had two Miller High Life beers that day. I had three Miller High Life beers that day. I had four Miller High Life beers that day. And now, baby, now I'm voluptuous and I'm sexy and my red hair was flowing. And not only did my flat chest not be flat, I was getting (laughs) bazoom right in front of me. And my zits, my horrible purple, purple, ugly, pussy things on my... Just dropped off. Smooth like a baby's butt. And I talked and I didn't stutter and I told jokes and they laughed. And by God, I danced with every man in Ewol's Tavern that day. Some of them two times, baby. And by the time I had the fifth beer... God, I was an eagle. I was up on the mountaintop. I was flying. I was free. Air was going through my hair. If you didn't feel that way, maybe you better go back and have one more drink. I have to watch how I talk. Sometimes I see newcomers going out the door. <laughs> and I sat down, and here's old dog. I affectionately called this guy that my father got me a date with dog. He he had about four chins, weighed about 400 pounds. And I knew how babies were made, and I kept thinking, I weigh 89 pounds, and he weighs 400.
1: Huh.
0: I thought, my, my, my. And he was looking like an old Cheshire cat. He was getting ready to eat the canary bird. He was just so happy. And I, all of a sudden, I got the gift. I got, had my second spiritual awakening. I was able to read his mind. And then, I could take my thoughts and I could put it into his head, see? And he was thinking, it's only going to take one more beer. And I was thinking, you damn dog, if you live to be a hundred, you're not going to get in my drawers. And he did and I never saw a dog again. But... That started a 22-year love affair. This love affair was wonderful. This love affair worked every time. Every time I picked up that booze, that love affair worked for me. Some of you, oh, there's what, three men here tonight? You guys sometimes don't work when you get too many beers in (laughs) you. I know you find that hard to believe. (laughs) Because all our lives we've been programmed to tell you, Oh, Stud Muffin, you were wonderful. But alcohol worked, and it took me every time I drank for the next fifteen years. It took me up on the mountain, and the air went through my hair, and I felt free, and I was pretty, and I was sexy, and I was articulate, and I could sell real estate for Christ's sake. I went to Florida, by God, and just like Kelly, I found my calling. I could sell the best sunken real estate in the state of Florida, so it was covered with a little water. Who the hell cares? (laughs) And they took me down. I met these guys named the Mackle Brothers in Florida, and they were three young snot-nosed boys, and they had a dream. And they were selling this little mangrove island off the coast of Naples, Florida, and they were going to call the place Marco Island, and they were selling lots with seawalls for $3,500. And I was selling those damn things as fast as they could do it. I was selling it, and I was making money. And by the time I was 19 and a half years old, I had made my first million. And when they th- we finished down there, they took me up the road to a little town near Weeki Wachee, Florida. It was a little place that had six little box houses. You all would love them. <laughs> box houses. a piece, and it was called Spring Hill, Florida. And today, Spring Hill, Florida is one of the largest little cities in the state of Florida. And as fast as those damn Yankees could come down from Chicago and Pittsburgh and New York City and Philadelphia and give me their $8,700, baby, I'd give them a house. And I thought that if I accumulated enough money, that that money could translate into something that... Greaseball Mafia had that I wanted I know a lot about if you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it I wanted what that Mafioso guy had and I damn near sold my soul to get it he had power P-O-W-E-R and I wanted it and I thought if I got enough damn money I could have it And if you got in my way, baby, of my power and my money and my booze, I would shoot your goddamn ass. And I did. And some people think I make light of it. I don't. But by the time I had gotten to that point in my life, that hate and that venom that I had pushed down and pushed down and pushed down was just like methane gas. And you know what methane gas does? (laughs) Go to a geyser. Go to a geyser and see what <laughs> methane gas does. It goes a blurp, a blurp, a boom. And that methane gas called resentments and anger and, ha- and, and being abused and a little baby girl being raped by grown men when she's four years old. It surfaced and it surfaced and it surfaced and it surfaced. And one day I was in county lockup and four or five policemen raped and mutilated me. And when I got out of the hospital, I found four of the five of them, and they're not ever going to rape another woman. And they're never going to mutilate another woman. And if any man ever raped and mutilated me, I would do the same thing today, 28 years clean and sober. Katie and I worked a long time on that. And I'm cool with it. And I respectfully request that you be cool with it too. Please don't question me about it. I have worked hard and long on that phase of my life. It says in the book, you will not regret the past, nor wish to shut the door on it. I have made my amends. There's one man left. He lives in Tampa, Florida. I live in Tampa, Florida. My son lives in Tampa, Florida. My other five adopted children live in Tampa, Florida. I have six children living, uh, five of them in Chicago and one in New Jersey. And as long as my son stays healthy and all my children stay healthy, that cop is going to stay healthy. That's about his loving and tolerant As I know how to be. Don't ask me to go any further today. Maybe tomorrow. Today, I'm cool. Now we'll get on with the rest of my sad ass story. Okay? (laughs) I hate that part of it. I hate it. All right. I was in Chicago... Shortly before my 20th birthday, it was January 1959, and I was in Chicago, and I met this wonderful man named John Murphy, and he was my real estate agent. And he was buying, he was helping me buy rental in a Jewish, old Jewish neighborhood in Chicago, beautiful rental neighborhood. And I was there to invest my money. And John was good-looking. Woo! Ask me how good-looking John was. Money, you should ask. He was so hot. God, I was lusting after him. Ask me how much I was lusting after him. Oh, baby, that's none of your business.
1: <laughs>
0: and I wanted to do two things. John Murphy didn't drink. Imagine that. John Murphy didn't drink. And I wanted to get John Murphy to take a drink with me. And I wanted to get him in the feathers in that order. See, and I'm happy to report that I never did get John Murphy to drink and I never got that boy in the feathers. And let me tell you why. John Murphy was a principled moral man. You know why? John Murphy was a friend to Bill and Bob. See, and one night uh, John Murphy said to me, Patty says, I'm going to a meeting at the Bismarck Hotel on 8 o'clock on a Sunday night. And I thought, that's a hell of an odd time to have a real estate meeting in the city of Chicago. But he said, I'd like you to come to this meeting. Never said it was real estate. I just assumed it was. And he said, I'd like you to come to that meeting. Would you come to that meeting with me? And I said, oh, sure, John. And I'd been in the city about a month then. And I went in, and my God, I had gone to (laughs) A&A. Lord. No women there. This is January 1959. Those bastards were 50 years old. They looked like they had been dead three days and somebody (laughs) forgot to bury them. They smelled musty. God, nasty bastards. And they were, this whole hour, they were pointing their finger at me and saying things like unmanageability and uh, blah, blah, blah. blah. And uh, finally at the end of the meeting, one particularly nasty old bastard pointed at me and said, hey, girl. You want what we have? And I thought, hell no. (laughs) Jesus. But somehow, it was the first time I'd ever been in a room full of men in a long, 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 long time that didn't want anything out of me except my highest good. And that intrigued me. What was wrong with these men? Had I lost it? And I stuck around for a while to figure out what the hell was their angle. And I kept going, and they kept saying that they wanted my highest good. And they tried to convince me my life was unmanageable. So I kept going to that ANA one day at a time, got drunk every night, would go to a meeting during the day, would get drunk every night one day at a time. (laughs) And I did that for 18 years and one month. That was January 1959. I got sober February the 8th, 1977. That's 18 years in one month. And alcohol worked for me for about 15 years. And the last part of my drinking, the same thing that happened to you, happened to me. Alcohol didn't work anymore. No matter how much I drank, when I drank, who I drank with, what I drank with, it just didn't work anymore. And you know what happens, pain and remorse and guilt and everything sets in. And then what happens to that old methane gas you've been pushing down and down and down and down? Well, baby, it starts popping. Boom, 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 boom. And the eruptions, boom. And the hate and the venom. And I found out that I was just, I was just full of hate and venom. And I hated everybody. I wasn't selective If you were white, I hated you because you were white. If you were a female, I hated you. If you were black and you were a male, if you were a gay person, I didn't give a shit. I just hated your guts. I hated everybody. And you know the one I hated the most? Everybody says Patty. No, you know the one I hated the most? G-O-D. That Catholic God. That those people sent me to. That I had wanted to become a nun when I was 16 years old and they turned me down because I was illegitimate. This is 1955. Today they'll take anybody. I don't give a shit. That's true. They wanted me when I got sober. <laughs> That's a long story. We won't talk about that. I turned them down this time. (laughs) Revenge is mine, saith the Lord. (laughs) And so I went to prison five times. I was guilty every time. Hate, venom, shooting gun, bourbon, whiskey, trucks, guns, boom, boom, boom. Hated it. Hated everybody. And by the time I, 1972 had rolled around, I just didn't care anymore. I didn't care. I didn't care whether I lived or died. I didn't care about anything. My kids were getting grown, and I just didn't care about anybody anymore, anytime, anywhere. And I decided to do the only thing that I thought I should do is that I went down up underneath the bridge in night around 1975, and I had a little freezer box in Eloise, Florida and on february the 8th 1977 that morning i don't know why that morning who knows i had the little moment of clarity we all talk about and something happened to me that morning i didn't want to live the way i was living any more and then reality set in that i really didn't know how to live any other way and then i felt hopeless Then there was no hope. And that's when I cried out and I said the prayer to God as I understand God. And it turns out it's the same prayer you said. And it's so simple, isn't it? Dear God, help me. Help me. And he did. And they found me crawling down the seventh floor corridor of Lakeland General Hospital, miles away. I have no idea how I got there. And Bob Terry, God love Bob Terry, he died of Alzheimer's. He put me up against the wall. And I had been to meetings many, many times at Lakeland General Hospital in Lakeland, Florida. And he thought he recognized me and he said, Patty? And he put his arms around me with the puke and the vomit and the the urine and the maggots and the pus and the syphilis and... And he put his arms around me and he kissed me and he held me and he held me and he said, welcome back, babe. And uh, and I died that night. And I died the next night and the next night and the next night and the next night. And three months later, I was still dying. And, and my, I only had 15% of my liver and I had blown my kidneys. They were getting ready to remove them. And I had blown my pancreas and I was on insulin and my heart was kind of bad. It was, uh, it would beat too fast and then it wouldn't beat fast and then it would be too fast. And, la, 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 la. and I had tubes every place, you know, and I would come to and there'd be a person there and you'd be smiling at me and you'd say, hi, Patty.
1: "Ah,
0: Then I'd close my eyes and nod off and I'd wake up again and you'd be standing there. Hi, Patty. And I found out later it was AAs and Al-Anons and older teens that sat with me for two hours, 24 hours a day, seven days a week for six months. That's people of Florida, Lakeland, Florida, Tampa, St. Petersburg, that's the kind of AAs down there. That's why I love them. I went down there two and a half years ago. I went back home from Chicago, and I was dying one more time. I was 26 years sober, and I was dying. I had made a tragic mistake. I married somebody I didn't love, didn't love. And several years later, he had a horrible accident, and I kept him home out of guilt And kept him home for 12 years, and he was emotionally four years old. And uh, the guilt was eating me up. And one more time, the damn methane gas was ready to pop. And this time, I wouldn't have drank. You know what I would have done? Because I was in so much pain. And I went to this meeting. And they said that this woman named Kelly was almost dead, that her car had run over her. And they said, would you go to par detox and take over her commitment? And I went to par detox and took over her commitment. And, and things like that was just about enough to keep me. And I met Annie at the same meeting. And she came over and put her arms around me and she said, I love you. And there was nothing to love because I was full of hate and venom. And I didn't want your friendship, pushy broad This one gets out of the hospital. Five weeks later, they told her she'd never walk again. She comes into the meeting at the the gratitude, the annual gratitude dinner. She can hardly walk. And you see what the way uh, Kelly looks every time she comes here dressed to the nines? She came in that meeting that day, couldn't hardly walk, but dressed to the nines, every hair in place, makeup on. And I thought, holy shit, look at that. And she took one look at me and she grabbed me and she didn't wait for me to ask her help. She took me. And remember how she told you how she does fourth and fifth steps? She grabbed my ass, sat me down, came to my house, climbed up my stairs one stair at a time in my condo with two broken goddamn legs with pins in them and said, I'm going to dictate your character defects. Just write them down. Four pages later. And we, we started doing a six-step, seven-step. And I cried, and I cried, and I cried, and I cried. And the healing began. Please don't ever assume because we're 26 years sober that we are well. Don't do that to us. Please don't do that to us. We get dead that way. See? Thank you for saving my life, baby. I know that, honey. And Annie, thank you for loving me. Thank you. And I'm telling you, this program is so awesome. I don't have to tell you about all the successes that have happened to me. I, you don't, We don't have enough hours tonight to tell you about the successes that have happened to me. But you know what I have today? I have my soul. <laughs> I have my soul. And I have some joy. I have great, great joy in my life. I have energy. Jesus, I'm 65 years old. Sometimes my young babies can't keep up with me and I'm just getting my second win, you know, and I found out that I can go to the gates of hell and come back again, even sober 26 years. You know, I don't measure time anymore. The time is time is a state of mind is what did I do? What did I give freely of today to another alcoholic? Who did I help today and didn't get found out about it? What did I do nice today and didn't get found out about it? How can I be of maximum service to God? Did I pray today? And my prayers today are very simple. If you think you're gonna hear some big complicated relationship between me and God, I told you about that. Mmm mm. oh, Done work for me. If it works for you, keep on doing it. Go light up two cigarettes. You know, make it three, smoke three cigarettes, have some chocolate, you know, do your mmm if it works. I go down the stair every morning and I have a little crucifix at the bottom of my stairs and I touch it. Could be, could be anything, could be a cross, could be a, um, what do you call that thing, a star David. Maybe it could be anything. I just touch it and on it, it says peace to all who enter here. That's what it says when you come into my house. Peace to all who enter here. And when I'm going out the door to get in my car to go to work, there's my prayer. Here's my big prayer. Here's my relationship with God. Dear God, just let me love him the way you do. And if I'm loving you the way God wants me to, I can't hurt you. I can't judge you. I can't take your inventory. I can't rule or try to regulate or manipulate your life. Well, the only thing I can do is that I can have great vicarious delights in your successes and I can cry at your, at your losses. And now when good things happen to you, I'm not jealous anymore. Isn't that neat? (laughs) That's neat. I can hardly believe that about me. Because I was so full of hate. And when good stuff happened to you, I'd think, bitch, why did it happen to me? And if you had a great loss, I'd say, you deserve it, bitch. And now today, something bad happens to you and I go home and I say, come on, God, lighten up on them a little bit, you know. Jesus, I mean, you know, it's a rough time. It's a rough time. So I, I, I'm going to close, but i got to tell you the story of Bob Terry. In the big book, it tells the story of Fred and Jim and the jaywalker. Are you all, all familiar with those three stories? Well, Jim was always my main man. I always liked Jim. That bastard put that scotch in that milk. You know, I could just identify with that total insanity. And then I thought one day, of all the people that I admire in Alcoholics Anonymous, I think that the very act of love that that that, uh, Bob Terry did that day of putting his arms around me and saying that little act of kindness of welcome back, babe, well, it goes much deeper than that. They didn't want to keep me at Lakeland General Hospital, and I didn't know until years later that Bob Terry had went down, didn't make much money, and he and his wife, Jenny, she was in remission from leukemia. He went down and signed his name that if I didn't pay him, he would pay him out of his salary. I found that out years later. And after I left Florida, after two years of sobriety, I went up to hey. Chicago and I got a great job in a steel mill and the chance to go to Purdue University my last two years. And Katie Martin Haygood had said, you go become a CPA. And I'd say, you're nuts. That's the way. I well, sometimes I talk to her that way. <laughs> when I didn't think she was listening. But I'd go across town and badmouth her at another meeting. <laughs> Y'all have never done that. <laughs> and, uh, she'd say, you become a CPA. And I'd say, Katie, Katie, aren't you listening? I mean, is that, is that little brain of yours, is it shriveled down to a little P? I mean, what's wrong with you? I have been in prison five times. In the United States of America, they don't let people like me write their CPA exams with, criminal history. They, they're they trying to protect their citizens against people like me. Don't you understand? And she'd look at me like I was stupid and she'd say, shut up. I thought that was a slogan in AA. Shut up. God will provide. Shut up. Go to school. Have you gone to school yet? What are you moaning about? Go to school. Did you go to school yet? You don't even have a degree yet and you're whining already. Go to school. Shut up. Oh, you made that perfectly clear. I'll go to school. So I went to school. And six months, six months before I was to graduate from Purdue University, I'm at the steel mill working one day with my hard hat on and my steel-toed shoes, and my big boss man calls me up in his office. He says, Patty, I don't know what the hell's wrong, but your parole officer's on the telephone and wants to talk to you right now. Well, you know when that happens, guess what happens to your knees? Well, you start like this. And I I was shaking I almost peed my pant pissed in my pants and uh oh my god and I was I and he said are you sitting down Now when your poll officer says that to you boy this is serious and I said yes I'm sitting down he said I don't know what you've done but three governors of three different states have signed your pardon you don't have a criminal record anymore And I started screaming and everybody in the steel mill found out about it. And the, 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 the crane man that operated the big overhead crane who dropped a load of steel near me was going to kill me because he didn't want women in the steel mill. And I 12-stepped that son of a bitch six months later. And he was so happy to to toot, toot the horn. And everybody was. And Frank Kyle, the president of the mill, came out and said, What the hell's going on in my mill? And everybody said, Patty's free, Patty's free, Patty's free. And Frank Kyle hugged me and said, Go home. You're useless today. And I went home. And I was free. I was free. And I could go anywhere. I didn't have to get permission from my parole officer. So I could cross the county line. I could cross the state line. I could. I was free. And I called Katie. And I said, Katie, I'm free. I'm free. I'm free. And she said, what's the? Said, Qu- quiet down. What ha- what's wrong? Shut up. What's wrong? <laughs> and I told her. And she said, oh, my God. She said, Patty. You're a runner. And now you can run again. You're free. You can run. All right, bitch. I suppose you want me to stay here, don't you? She said, oh, I don't care what you do as long as you're willing to live with the consequences of the actions. You know the routine. So she said, why don't you try staying in Chicago until you don't want to run anymore? So I stayed 18 more years. <laughs> and then I didn't want to run anymore. And then I came home just in time to meet The Women Who Saved My Life in Alcoholics Anonymous, one more time. And I'll tell you about Bob Terry. Every February the 8th, after I left, I would call Bob Terry up, especially Bob and his Al-Anon wife, Jenny, because she was special to my heart. Thank God for the Al-Anon program, for (laughs) (laughs) Al-Anons. We won't go into that not here being a recovering alcoholic doesn't mean you have an Al-Anon deficiency think about it we have enough sick women in AA you ought to stay here and meet a few of them as they're coming through the door it's hard to find them in Al-Anon right, there we go Minding my own, somebody else's business again. Katie wouldn't let me go to Al-Anon. She said, Patty, people like you get scattered and splattered all the time. She said, the main purpose of Al-Anon is different than the main purpose of Alcoholics Knowledge. She said, why don't you read their literature and find out about it? She said, you don't, know, you don't have to detach. You've been detaching all your life, baby. You need to learn to commit. And um, so that's enough of that. You're going to do what you want to do anyway. So anyway, I called Bob Terry every birthday, and he would get on the phone, and I'd sing, happy birthday to me, happy birthday to me, happy birthday, precious Patty, happy birthday to me, and he'd say, oh, baby girl, you're still sober. And I'd say, yeah, I am. And I'd say, thank you for saving my life. He'd say, oh, I didn't save your life. God saved your life. I was only the messenger. And I'd say, shut up, Bob, and say thank you. And he'd say thank you, and then we'd talk. And I went to see him every time I went home to Florida, six, eight, nine times a year to see my kids. I would always stop by Bob and, and Jenny's house. I would always call them. I, w- I would always keep in contact with them because and them and there's a Ken and Willie, another man and husband and wife that have become like the, the, the parents that I never had. And I loved I love these people in sober forty Ken and Willie sober forty years and his wife's forty one years in Al-Anon And there I go in sometimes in their house and we just sit around and we play games or we go out to lunch and I come back and I, and I had the answer. I, I knew the answer when I went there. Because I had been praying to God to give me the answer. And so every birthday I'd call. And one year I was home and all my AA sisters, I think I've shared with you that there were eight other females in myself that got sober about the same time. Evie Smith Brown got sober November 14, 1976. She's the oldest of the nine of us in sobriety. I'm the baby of the nine of us at February the 8th, 1977. And those, not a day goes by that those witches don't remind me that they are, older in sobriety that I am, that I really don't know my butt from a hole in the ground. And shut up now that Katie's bed, that's that's dead, that's what they tell me. Shut up. What do you think? Oh Miss AA, a., Miss Circuit Speaker. And you should see how they gig me. No respect. Like Roger Roger Jangerfield, no respect at all. And uh, and and Bob was talking that day to all of us and he would sit there and all of a sudden he would lapse into Nothingness. And I went into the uh, kitchen and I said, Jenny, what is wrong with Bob? And she said, oh, honey, she said, we didn't want to tell you, but Bob's got the beginnings of Alzheimer's disease. And the next year, they decided to sell their place in Florida and go back to the state of New York to be around their children where their children could help them. And uh, I called the next year, and I went to see them a couple of times in New York. And I called, and uh, um, uh, Jenny said, oh, honey, she said, I'm so glad you're sober. But she said, he doesn't, he doesn't even know me. And we talked, and we talked, we laughed, and we giggled, and we had a good time. And I said to her, oh, just for the heck of it. I said, just for me, put him on the phone. Just put him on the phone. She said, okay. And I said, happy birthday to me, happy birthday to me, happy birthday, precious Patty, happy birthday to me. And there was silence on the end of the phone, and my heart died. And then I heard this little voice say, Oh, baby girl, are you still sober? And I said, Yes, I am, Bob. I said, "Uh, Thank you for saving my life. He said, Oh, I didn't save your life. God saved your life. I was just the messenger. And I said, Oh, shut up, Bob, and say thank you. And he said, Thank you. And after that, he was gone again. And I never saw him alive after that. And the next year, I called and uh, Jenny and I were talking, and it was my birthday, and just before we hung up, she said, oh, by the way, she said, you know, before Bob got real sick, he taught me the routine. I said, what? She said, he taught me the routine. I know it. And I said, you do? She said, yeah. And I said, Happy birthday to me. Happy birthday to me. Happy birthday, precious Patty. Happy birthday to me. And I said, oh, thank you, Bob and Jenny, for saving my life. She said, oh, Bob and I didn't save your life. God saved your life. We were only the messengers. I said, oh, shut up, Jenny, and say thank you. She said, thank you. And we laughed like hell. And that went on for a couple of years. And I called Jenny back. It was right before Christmas. And she said, honey, I got bad news for you and uh, she said i was hoping we'd be able to see you this christmas are you going to be able to make it and i said no she says well i better tell you over the phone my leukemia my remission that i've had for years has come back my leukemia and she said uh this time i'm not going to make it and we cried and uh, so february the 8th i called And uh, there was no answer at the phone. And I knew what had happened. And so she had given me the number of her daughter, Joanne Lee, in New York. And I called Joanne. And um, Joanne said, oh, Patty, thank you for calling. She said, we tried to get in touch with you. Mother died. And she said, we tried. We didn't know your number. We tried. We tried every way to find you because we knew you'd want to attend the funeral. (laughs) And she said, it, it must be your birthday today. And I said, yes. She says, how long are you sober? And I think I was 24 years sober then. And she said, oh, she said, I wish my dad and my mom were alive to see it. And, and we talked and talked and I asked how her brother was and how her children were. And because these people had become like my family. And right when I hung up, she said, Patty, she said, before Mom died, she taught me the routine. I said, she did? Yeah, I know the routine. She said you'd call. And I said, happy birthday to me. Happy birthday to me. Happy birthday, precious Patty. Happy birthday to me. And I said, Oh, Bob and Jenny, thank you for saving my life. And she said, Oh, my mom and dad didn't save your life. God saved your life. They were just the messengers. And I said, Oh, Joanne, shut up and say thank you. And she said thank you. And we laughed and we cried and we laughed and we cried. And you see, Alcoholics Anonymous is a lot more than sobriety. It's a lot more. It's people who love you. People who, when you call them up and say, you, come to Iceland, help me. You, come to Iceland, help me. And this one says, we're the, is Iceland. <laughs> I said, Iceland's the green one and the green one is the ice one. And, she, and you know what they said? We'll be there. We'll be there. So when the hand reaches out, uh, when your hand reaches out, like my hand reaches out, I hope you have established AA Sisters. AA Sisters, do you hear what I'm saying? Be friends with men. They need all the help they can get. (laughs) But you better damn well reach out to your AA Sisters because when your tit gets in a ringer, baby, you better have some AA Sisters backing you up. I love you. Thank you so much for listening to my sad-ass little story.